The following podcast represents the opinions of the host and is for educational purposes. These are not accusations, and everybody is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. It sounds like Chris was out there by himself, starting at like 6.30 in the morning. Yeah. That was Cody Roberts, a co-worker of Chris Watts. He had called me on Sunday. Um, I missed the call and he texted me saying he was going to go out there first thing in the morning. Um, he called me about 5 o'clock Sunday afternoon and then followed it up with a text let me know. So what was the text on Sunday? I have the whip checks for the Survey 629. I'm going to go straight out there from my house in the morning. I will look at that 319, uh, the one that had the stain around it. I don't think I went back that far. Yeah. Is it normal for, say, Chris on a Sunday to text and say he's going to go somewhere early on Monday morning? Um, for me personally, no, but I, I talk to him on the weekends every once in a while while I'm working um, on the weekends. If I have any questions, I'll give him a call. He's always readily available. So what about it's, what about it isn't usual for him? No, it, I just was surprised that he called me on Sunday. I mean, I didn't know he was going to go out there until he called me because um, a lot of people don't like going out to the ranch for at all period because it's so far out of the way I mean it's a 30 minute drive back to at least Hudson it's on a good day I mean yeah it takes a while to get out there mm-hmm. it's, it's far in the middle of nowhere <laughs> There's been a lot of debate as to whether or not Chris Watts' details of events of the morning of August 13th was the truth or not. When detectives sat down with them in February of 2019, what they heard shocked them. But it didn't surprise them. They set the trap and Chris fell right into it. The discovery documents is just a crazy mountain of information. A skyscraping haystack with a handful of needles hiding within the madness. But they are there. And the more you find, the more things start to make sense. But, not all of the needles are left in that haystack. We have to use what's available to tell the full story. We have to rely on the facts we have and can only fill in the blanks with our imaginations and educated guesses. But you don't need to have a wild imagination to connect the dots here. The facts are all right there. Nuggets of information hidden within the bigger picture. Slip-ups here and there. A specifically chosen word. Hesitation here and defensive answers there. As I looked over the events leading up to the 13th of August, I noticed something interesting. Something calculated. On August 12th, the day before his wife and two daughters would go missing, Chris Watts texted a co-worker of his. At 5.06pm, Chris texted Cody Roberts to tell him he would be going to the Survey Ranch early the next morning. This was odd because Chris and Cody never really spoke on weekends, and he was surprised to hear from Chris on a Sunday. Chris texted Cody, I have whip checks for Survey 629. I'm going to go straight out there from my house in the morning. I will look at that 319 as well and run the 1129 if you want. Cody replied, I was going to head out there first thing tomorrow to check out the 319. Did Troy talk to you about what I had found out there Friday afternoon? Chris replied, Yep, I was standing right next to him. I was giving him a fire stick to look at. I can go out there though. No sense in both of us going out there. The next morning, Chris Watts would have the field to himself. There would be nobody there, and he would be free to do what he wanted. He would be free to do what he planned.
Chad McNeil, a co-worker of Chris Watts, was assigned to an oil battery called Survey 319, located just north of Rogan, Colorado. Survey 319 is described as a standard-sized site of approximately half an acre, containing two tanks, a separator, and a pump. Chad received a text message from Chris around 6.15 a.m., telling him that he was at the site and asked if he was headed out there, and letting him know he was already there. Chris wanted to make sure nobody would be arriving anytime soon. Then, at 6.43 a.m., Chris called another co-worker, but the call was declined. At 7.40 a.m., Chris called back. This time, he answered. So Monday morning, okay. um, what time do you leave to go to work? I leave, well, I usually leave my house about 6 o'clock. Okay. Is that I'm what, supposed to be here about 6.30. Here at the office? Yes. So, so did you come straight to the office on, yes, sir, I did. on uh, Monday morning? Yeah. So 8.13. Yeah, and I actually, I received a phone call from Monday morning, but I couldn't answer it while I was driving. So you can see in here, it's phone call declined. Okay. But uh, do you have the time yes, on sir, that I'll one? Yes, sir, the time stamp for you. That's what I'm looking for. Chris Watts, right here, he called me. It's the same time. See, and call canceled because I was driving. Because okay. I can't accept that. Yeah. And that's 6.43 So you got to, so incoming from Chris. At 6.43. Okay. What time do you leave here on Monday? Approximately, um, probably 7.40. I was on the road. Okay. Do you remember that day where you headed first? My first location was going to be to head out to Serbia. So, well, okay. The Do you remember the 319 or the 1029? Or no, it was a 319 because they were testing that bypass line because I had the call from Chris here. Let me verify. That was at 6.43 when I told you about mm-hmm. it. And then I talked to Chad McNeil. And then after that, I talked to Chris again at 7.40 a.m. Incoming call. Um, so what do, what do you and Chris talk about? What's going on on the field? That was Troy McCoy, a co-worker of Chris Watts. Chris called Troy the morning of August 13th. The first call was declined, but the second call was answered, and the two spoke for about 30 seconds. And then, at 7.40 a.m., that same minute, Chris sent Shanann a text message. If you take the kids somewhere, please let me know where they are at. Chris Watts was starting to cover his tracks, or at least he was trying to and Troy McCoy would soon return to Survey 319. And the coincidences would, once again, start to add up. At 8.30 a.m., Chris called his daughter's school. Shannon Meyer received a phone call from Chris that morning. Chris told her he was calling to let them know the girls weren't going to start. He said he wasn't really sure what was going on yet, but that they were going to be moving and putting the house up for sale, and they weren't sure whether they were going to stay in the area. Then Chris asked, Are the girls there? She told him they weren't, and Chris thanked her and hung up. About an hour later, Shanann's mother, Sandra, called the girls' school. She told her she was Shanann's mother and that everything was fine and not to tell anyone she called. And she asked her to excuse her for caring and not to worry about anything. At 10.10am, Chris Watts once again looked up the lyrics to the song that Nicole Kessinger had, as he said, Put in my head again. If you recall from the last episode, it was the song Battery by Metallica. Its lyrics are dark and oddly prophetic. 20 minutes later, while his phone is alive and buzzing with alerts from concerned friends and people looking for Shanann, Chris is searching for hotels in Aspen, and shortly after calls the Weston Stonemass Resort, and then looks up a Groupon deal. All the while, co-workers looked on. In hindsight, I must admit it's crazy to think about how someone could act so normal after what just happened. Calm and collected, just the typical nice guy everyone knew. Everything leading up to this moment in Chris Watts' mind seems so clear. 
He knew what he had to do, and in his mind, he was doing everything right. Until... How you guys doing? What's that? Do you remember me? Yeah. Hey, man. How you been? At 1.40 p.m., Officer Scott Coonrad was dispatched to 2825 Saratoga Trail. Hi. You're Nicole? Yes. Okay. What's going on? So, my friend, um, we were out of town for a business trip this weekend. Right. And I dropped her off at 2 o'clock this morning. She's 15 weeks pregnant. She wasn't feeling well. And she had a doctor's appointment this morning at 9, and I told her to let me know if she needed me to take her. She's got two little girls. And um, she was very distraught over the weekend, wasn't eating normally or drinking, and we kept trying to force it on her because she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, her husband and her supposedly are separating, but she didn't know this. She thought they were just having issues. He disclosed that to me today. Because okay. I called him, and I was like, have you talked or heard from Shanann since you left for work this morning? Because I can't get a hold of her. I've called. I've texted. Her car's in the garage. Her shoes she wears every single day are by the front door. She only has one vehicle? No, they only have the one vehicle and his work truck. Okay, that's what I'm asking. There's not a... The girls and went on a play date, but they're four and two. She went on a play date. Why wouldn't she take a car? From everything I've read about this case, there's one thing I know for certain. Nicole Atkinson was a great friend and an overall great person. Her loyalty was unmistakable, and she really believed in what she and Shanann were doing and in the Thrive lifestyle. This part of the story is important. When Officer Coonrad responded to 2825 Saratoga Trail, it was just a welfare check. I could try my hardest to explain the next sequence of events, but I think it's best to play portions of the actual audio from Officer Coonrod's body cam. I'll do my best to describe what's happening as the story unfolds. Okay, no answer on the phone, husband's on his way. You do? I do, but there's a thing on it. There's a... No, it'll... You know, Chris, I'm going to do it. There's a... They have the thing flipped up here. Oh. What about the garage door? I don't know. Is there... Um, do you mind calling him and seeing if we can get a passcode to this and get my permit... Give him... Get me permission to go in? Okay. I'm just going to check the back, see if I can see anything. At this point, Officer Coonrad walks around back. Right. I just want to look in all the windows and make sure I don't see anything out of... Do they? He knocks on the basement windows, which are locked up tight. Walking around to the back of the house, he tries the sliding glass back door. He keeps knocking, peering through the windows, but there's no sign of life inside. They walk around front and approach the front door. It's again locked tight and latched from the inside. At this point, Officer Coonrod calls Chris. Hey, Chris, Officer Coonrod for the police department. Pretty good. So, do you have any idea where your wife is? Okay. Right. Well, my concern is her car's here. They're saying she is diabetic. I don't want her... If she's upstairs and can't respond. 
Okay, about how far out are you? Okay, alright. Thanks. Dispatch for 981. It's around this time, a gray Ford pickup truck slowly pulls up to the curb. It's Chris. He gets out of the truck, walks around the front to the passenger side, and casually grabs something from the front passenger seat, before he suddenly starts sprinting toward Officer Coonrod with his hand stretched out. Let's take a quick break. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Scott, how you doing? How's it going? So this is the only vehicle she would have? Only one that, yeah. She would drive? Okay. Chris went through the garage door and unlocked the front door. Mind if I come in, Chris? Chris wasn't even calling out for his missing family. He was texting, pacing back and forth. And then, he quickly walks downstairs. And then before you know it, he's back. As Chris speaks to the officer, you can see the wheels in motion, constantly searching for the next line of dialogue in his head trying as hard as possible to keep things above water. He's not looking for his family. In hindsight, this just seems weird. You would think he would have been acting the part of the concerned, frantic husband, in the depths of despair and inconsolable. I don't even think he expected things to unfold as they did. In my opinion, I don't think he suspected that Shanann's presence, and her drive to succeed and inspire others, would eventually be his undoing. At 2.11pm, Chris sends message to Shanann. Where are you? Then, at 3.45 p.m., Chris texts Nicole Kessinger. Nicole Kessinger would tell detectives that she did not hear a lot from Chris that day. He texted and said it was a busy day and nothing he said was suspicious. She left work at 3 p.m. according to her time card and returned home to a good friend. She refused to provide detectives with this friend's last name and said he doesn't know anything about this event and didn't even know Chris. When she got home, she told detectives Chris texted her and something about his family being missing. The last time the two spoke would be the night before. According to Nicole Kessinger, on the morning of August 13th, Nicole and Chris FaceTimed. During the call, Chris was laying on a mattress without any sheets on it. He told Nicole that he was cleaning his house and trying to keep busy and take his mind off things. When Nicole asked why the bed had no sheets on it, Chris told her they were his daughter's sheets and they smelled and he said he was washing them. She told detectives that during the call, Chris didn't say much, and, according to her, and I quote, fixated on her, and was staring at her during the entire video call. So that was back when, well, when Nicole Atkinson, yeah, when, when she was at yeah, uh, my house, hitting the doorbell, that's right. when I knew, I was at the house. Right. Did you think right then, like, oh fuck, like here we go, or what were you thinking about? I, I didn't know why she was there. I was like, I didn't know, like, maybe maybe she had an appointment or something with Shanann. I, I didn't know. What did you think, like, that day, like, what you were going to say? Like, what was your plan? Were you just going to go home and be like, 
report to the police that your family's gone I, or I had like once like, I had no idea what was gonna happen like after everything I mean I don't even know how I was even acting even normal to people that I was around because when like Troy and Cody and Chad and Melissa and all them like you know when they showed up on the site I don't even know how I was even being somewhat even coherent what I was saying but apparently that I should make so I I didn't know what was going to happen. Like, like I said, I, this wasn't like something like some criminal minds type. Like well thought yeah, out. Yeah, thing. it wasn't nothing like that. You just hit by minute at that point. Yeah, it was, I had no idea what, what was going to happen. At 4 p.m., Nicole Kessinger called Chris, and he told her that the police were at his house. He said that Shanann's friend Nicole Atkinson and her son came to his house, and that they found Shanann, Bella, and Celeste missing, and then called police. He said Nicole Atkinson was running all over the house and up and down the stairs. During this conversation, he also told Nicole that the blankets were missing from his daughter's room. That's when she asked Chris if maybe Shanann's friend Nicole Atkinson could have taken the blankets. Chris told her he thought Shanann had taken them with her. When I originally watched the body cam footage, I was blown away. If body language had an actual voice, Chris Watts was screaming that he was guilty. Anybody who watched this footage would know something didn't add up. There was more to the story, and that his behavior was just not normal for someone whose wife and two young daughters were missing. His behavior was just creepy. He almost seemed like a robot, devoid of any human emotion, yet still functioning, still working through the motions. I can only imagine what was going through Officer Kunron's head as this all unfolded. That being said, I can only imagine the effect this had on everybody involved. But that's another story for another episode. Right now, things are starting to fall apart for Chris Watts. And within the next 48 hours, his life, as well as everybody close to him, would be changed forever. At 4.19pm on August 13th, 2018, Officer Matthew James arrived at 2825 Saratoga Trail. Hi, sir. Yeah, I'm Officer James Frederick PD. What's your name? Chris Watts. Nice to meet you. So we're just waiting for our sergeant to come over and we'd like to go through your house. Are you okay with yeah. us searching through your house? All right. Um, we'll have you sign a consent form. We just want to see if you left a note or anything in, okay. inconspicuous, something like that. All right. Um, so uh, if you're good with that, we'll have you sign a consent form allowing okay. us to search your house and okay. uh, we'll wait for our sergeant to get here. But okay. we'll grab that. You don't plan on going any, anywhere, right? No, I was just going to walk around the neighborhood just to ask clear my head. Which company do you work for? Anadarko. Anadarko. What do you do for them? Operator. So you work like seven days a week? Five and two. Like Monday through Friday. I'm doing eight and six next month. Okay. So today is Monday? Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's, let us grab that form and then uh, okay. we'll wait for our supervisor and then you can either stay here or you can go walk the neighborhood, whatever you like. We look through it. All right. Let's go grab that form. We'll be right back with you, Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Chris told the officers they had free reign to do whatever you gotta do, and he stayed outside on the deck as they searched his house. Chris told Officer James he usually uses the garage door, but it depends what Shanann uses. Chris said the only alerts he had for the doorbell were when her friends were there. Chris said the ring would record as you approached the front door, and told Officer James it showed Shanann had arrived home at 1.48am. Officer James would note throughout the interaction with Chris, he was very cooperative and answered questions appropriately. Nothing was readily observed inside the residence 
that would indicate a struggle. Then, at 5.01 p.m., Nicole Kessinger once again calls Chris. Then, again at 5.02, both calls went unanswered. Then at 5.30, Chris called Nicole Kessinger, but she didn't pick up. That's when, at 6 p.m., Chris called local hospitals. In less than four minutes, Chris called the Good Samaritan Medical Center, St. Anthony North Health Campus, Longmong Unites Hospital, and UC Health. The average duration of these calls was 40 seconds, and the longest was 69 seconds. Out of curiosity, the agent called St. Anthony's and asked if they could check if there was a certain patient there. It took two minutes for the agent to receive an answer. Friends Amanda and Nick Thayer would arrive at Chris Watts' house that day at 6.30 p.m. Amanda would tell detectives that at one point that evening they were in the kitchen talking. Chris was just pacing back and forth, and he just seemed numb and lost. They left the house that evening at 8 p.m. Later that night, at 9.12 p.m., law enforcement made a follow-up call to Chris Watts. And, once again, his actions would continue to fuel suspicions. And as usual, raise more questions than answers. That's him. Okay, let me just come on. This officer Goodman, is this Christopher? Yep. Hung up on me again. Hello, Christopher? Christopher. Yeah. Um, this officer good. Yeah. Hello, Christopher. Is this, this is Officer Goodman, Frederick Police Department. Are you there? Hello? Is that, and that's the number you called and it went right through last time you had contact with them? They don't have a house phone? That's a different number now. This is Officer Goodman, Frederick Police Department. Hey, this is Chris Watts. I was trying to call you back from my personal phone. Kept saying call failed. I must admit, researching this case has been like falling down a rabbit hole, one with so many twists and turns that, before I knew it, what I began to suspect had me sick to my stomach. Throughout my research and production of this podcast, I have been lucky to come into contact with some interesting people with very interesting theories. They have been helpful and have shed light on aspects of this case that I never even saw before. The ripple effect of this crime has seen its way across the world, and its echoes still reverberate to this very day. This skyscraping haystack has left us all trying our best to find the missing needles. As I said before, the digital footprint of this case, the rabbit hole, falls so deep that I have yet to even find the bottom. But luckily there are those willing to share the information they have. And to them, I say thank you. Less than an hour after Chris spoke with investigators, 
He calls Nicole Kessinger. At 9.48pm, they spoke for 50 minutes. Then, at 11.09pm, Nicole called Chris. And they talk again for 52 minutes. Troy McCoy started his day like any other on Tuesday, August 14th, 2018. He woke up early and drove to the Anodarko office, where he met with his team and made plans for the day. But, before the day was over, Troy would become another piece in this puzzle. <clears throat> so what do you do after you leave the training? Okay, there from that point, you know, I've got everything here going through my head. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Because it's been... Since Monday, since we've heard anything from Shanann. Okay, right? wait, wait, let me stop you there. No, you're good. So you said you got everything in your head. What? Tell me what that means. Well, everything that's going on. I with, mean, with? Yeah, well, Chris took off okay. work, you know, and I'm worried about his wife and his kids because I've known his wife and his kids, you know. I've been over, hung out with Shanann, hung out with Bella and everything, so I'm like, what's going on here? And he's been real short with me on text messages, mm -hmm. you know, and there's been no news updates. I've been seeing, you know, stuff coming out. If people are looking for him, everybody's sharing it on Facebook. So I was like, well, if nothing else, it's 1 o'clock. I don't have anything else to do. I'll head back out toward that, three, or that 319 and, you know, see if I see anything out of the norm and stuff like that. And that's the same time that that officer called me. What prompts you to, to want to go to the 319? Because that was the first location we were at that morning. Okay. Just... Because? or yeah, Something's tripping your suspicion here, obviously. Well, I mean, honestly, because I've seen him in the different clothes. Okay? I've seen him in that. And then, you know, and he just was short with me that day. So I drove out to the 319. And as soon as I went through the gate, the gate was already open. There was a water truck driver on location. Okay. And from MPT. And I signed his JSA. So I parked out by the wellhead. And I didn't want to alert the guy that I was, you know, out there looking for anything odd and suspicious or anything like that. So you I know what time that was? Um, I just round two o'clock or so I okay. arrived out there and I talked to the gentleman and everything like that and told him I was like well I think you know I might have forgot a crescent wrench or whatever because I didn't want him to tell him because I, I didn't know if I should look around the field or what I should do so that's what I told him okay you know and then I signed his JSA and I turned around and looked at the clock and it's like it's so freaking late that by the time I get out of Serby Ranch and back to um you know the area around like County Road 22 and you know 37 kind of like a baseline if somebody needs me, then I'm going to be way too far away. So I went ahead and just got back in my truck after I signed his JSA and left location. Where do you park when you pull up on Tuesday? When I pull up on Tuesday, I went right by him, right over here. Now I pulled up right about here on the location. Okay. And then he walked over from his pickup before I ever even got out of my truck, and he was right here. And I signed the JSA right there. Okay. Did he ask you what you were doing? Yeah, and I told him I was looking for a crescent wrench. Okay. But that was bullshit. To join the discussion and gain access to police reports, interviews, and material related to this episode, head to theunforgivables.com. Content is updated weekly, and you're welcome to review the documents and come to your own conclusions. Thanks for listening to The Watts Tapes. We'll be back next week with a new episode, and you can listen to all the episodes of The Watts Tapes for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as anywhere else you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a five-star review. It really does help.